Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Reverend Brian Combs, the pastor at the Haywood Street Congregation in Asheville, North Carolina. Now, most of us would love for our preaching to be described as conversational because it means that we sound natural and not like we have something memorized or like we're reading. But for Brian, conversational is literally the best adjective to describe his preaching, and he's here today to tell us all about it. Well, my guest today is Reverend Brian Combs. He's the pastor at the Haywood Street Congregation in Asheville, North Carolina. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm good. Glad to be with you. Thank you for the the invitation. Absolutely. Well, we met last year at the North Carolina Preaching Festival, uh, but for folks that don't know who you are or anything about your ministry, can you tell us a little bit about yourself as well as your ministry and its context? Sure. I'm a United Methodist minister. I grew up in Charlotte and middle-class home and felt uh, a calling to, uh, to pastoral ministry in junior high, but uh, as a young person with dyslexia and a phobia about public speaking like so many other ministers that I actually know, um, preaching was the last thing I thought I'd uh, find myself doing. So wow. yeah. went off to college and worked in a career in design for a little while, so technically second career, even though it was it was a brief stint. Um, always knew I felt called to ministry, but never thought of myself as the the person behind the pulpit or the person wearing the robe and stole. And yet, if there's one definition of calling that makes the most sense to me, it's it's a thing that you would never choose yourself that you can't not do. And mm. so here I am uh, doing the very thing that um, I promised God I wouldn't. And so, you know, my calling in life really began uh, at a church camp where I washed dishes and swept floors, and in seminary, it, it, it morphed into uh, ha- having a particularity to it, uh, a call into the streets. And so spent quite a bit of time in urban ministry class, uh, reading about Howard Thurman and incarnational theology, and when it was time to be appointed And the United Methodist Church in Western North Carolina, was very clear about where I needed to be. I wanted to be in an urban setting, I wanted to be in places of poverty. I wanted to be with folks who were living with mental illness and addiction, and um, there was nowhere to send me. And so, uh, in order to live out this calling, I needed to co partner with God to create something that didn't exist. And that's where Haywood Street began almost eight years ago. So, we are a, a downtown mission congregation, which is a little bit different than a constituted church. We intentionally can't support ourselves off the offering. Uh, because we work with, again, folks that have uh, no financial means, but enormous spiritual gifts in other places. And I anticipated this to be a a very small offering of of people uh, gathered around the Word and some fellowship, and it has grown in ways that were never intended. And probably the biggest surprise of all is while we're unapologetic about our welcome to folks, again, who are in poverty or coming out of psych wards and incarceration or struggling with, um, right now, Matthews is his big in our church. Um, it's, it's been housed people of means that have come uh, the most. That, that's the group of people that uh, uh, continue to show up at Haywood Street in, in, in larger and larger numbers. And so it's turned into this random mix of all kinds of folks that feel like their, their salvation is bound up in one another. So it's uh, it often colors outside the lines. It often doesn't follow what's printed in the bulletin, but but somehow God 
God keeps blessing us. That's great. And and I know that you've, you've mentioned before that while it is a blessing to have folks that are maybe outside of your original vision, it's a blessing, but it, it can also be a challenge. I know that, and I'm sort of perpetuating it a little bit and, and inviting you to give you a platform to speak out and it brings attention to Haywood Street. How do you keep your congregation focused on what you intend for it to be rather than it sort of becoming this, you know, great example and story that everyone just wants to take back to their suburbs and gated communities to talk about how great it was to be there? It's a great question. Uh, the, the first way we do that is we have a, a monthly orientation where folks interested in being a part of the church come and, and learn a little about our theology. And uh, a continuity of relationship is critical to, to what we're trying to do in the practice of ministry. And so oftentimes the, the call that I get is from a suburban church out of town that they want to come, they want to wear an apron, they want to pick up a shovel, they want to scrape a spatula, they want to do something for people in poverty. And implicit in that, even if it's well-intentioned, is this notion that God has blessed those who are of means, and God has cursed those who are without. And so oftentimes, the motivation behind the motivation for why people want to come is uh, someone in poverty gets turned into a project. Uh, Mm. It's a a notion of paternalistic evangelism. And so what we say overwhelmingly, we want you to come, uh, but you're going to have to come empty-handed. The invitation is to be with rather than do for. And so that has become a mantra in so many ways for us. And we say the commitment is is, is ongoing. And so if this is a one-time thing, uh, if it it smacks at all of... um, homeless voyeurism or poverty tourism, then we still want to still want to invite people to come because what ends up happening, of course, is folks show up with a particular agenda or assumption about why they're there. And if we strip that away and instead invite people into an encounter where they experience a homeless Jesus, uh, then conversion happens. Um, and so I don't want to take that away from people, but at the same time, I've got to be protective of, of why we were there in the first place. And, and I don't want Haywood Street to ever be overrun by gawkers. And so especially in the summertime where buses and vans and unexpected youth groups will come, uh, that's a place of tension. Um, this, this strange question that we ask ourselves about in, in order to be inclusive of those who are most excluded in the world, does that also mean that we have to exclude those people who are privileged in terms of their ability to navigate and uh, go anywhere they want to church? Um, do we have to tell them no? And that's that's a place we're struggling with, honestly. Mm. Well, this unique ministry setting has given birth to a unique preaching style. Uh, you mix in dialogue with your conversation as part of the sermon, and I was wondering how this came about, maybe the the history behind it and how you got started doing it. Sure. The, the the honest answer is before I got to Asheville, I was serving a rural two-point charge like many first-time pastorates. And uh, as, as I alluded to earlier, the, the weather in Western North Carolina is unpredictable. It's supposed to snow all weekend. I'd done all the exegetical work for Sunday, and the weatherman was, was convincing enough for me that everything was going to be snowed in Sunday. So I didn't write a sermon <laughs> and got up. Got up Sunday morning, and it was uh, sunny and beautiful, and so I, I showed up at both of my churches with nothing prepared. 
other than the stirrings of my heart and the way God reveals a, a possible message through the study, through the exegetical work. And so up until that point, I had been a manuscript preacher, like I'd been taught in seminary, and I clanked my knees behind the pulpit, and I read every word and uh, made no eye contact with the congregation, and, and then I sat down, and that was the preaching experience for me. But what happened was I left the pulpit. I stood in front of the congregation in the middle of the aisle and just said, let's have a conversation about this scripture. What is God saying to you? And the feedback I got from these two rural churches was overwhelming. They were unequivocal after the church service at 9, 30, and 11. Both separate congregations said the same thing to me. Don't ever go back to the pulpit. Don't ever write a manuscript again. There was a level of accessibility, and there was a partnership in co-creating a word of good news together that uh, was transformational for everyone involved. And so I took that to heart. And when I got to Haywood Street, when we started that worship service, imagine uh, folks that are having a bad trip in the pews. Imagine people who are openly psychotic. Imagine people that have been chronically homeless for over a decade and are grumpy for a thousand legitimate reasons. Well, there's one thing poverty does is is it, it makes you invisible and it makes you silent. And so what I stumbled into in my previous appointment was so applicable to what we were doing at Haywood Street. And so the sermon has become a place for everyone to offer their voice. And if we take if we take our baptismal vow seriously that we are all called to ministry, and then, then we're all called also to say something on behalf of God. And so I think about the sermon experience, the homiletical conversation, more as uh, jazz in a sense. I, I need to know the scales. I, I do even more exegetical work now than when I preach from the manuscript. And then I ask a leading question, and the bulk of the conversation is, is a dialogue where people fill in the gaps uh, in the same way Craddock talks about inductive preaching, that we, we trust the congregation uh, to speak. In Craddock's version, obviously, it's, it's not literally speaking, but in our context, it is to to name where God is connecting in their lives. And, and in a sense, the preacher's responsibility is to invite the congregation to finish the sermon themselves. And so sometimes it goes five or ten minutes, and there's a cacophony of voices and responses. Some of them are tangential. Some of them are far more profound than anything I could ever come up with myself. But I'm convinced now after nearly a decade of doing this, that my very best self, my very best preparation uh, could could never keep up with the wisdom of an entire congregation, Mm. bringing their experience, uh, their interpretation of the text to bear in, in the sermon. And so, uh, oftentimes, the feedback I get about people's impression of Haywood Street was that sermon moment. Wow, everyone really was taken seriously. Their their voice was heard. They got to share. And so at this point, there's no going back for me. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, and you shared that you've been doing it for a decade. How has the process evolved from uh, that, that maybe a little bit beyond the first day where you just showed up without a manuscript? But how, how has it yeah. evolved and changed over the 10 years? Well, it's changed in that early on, 
I would simply have the text read, and it, it was almost a, a, a Lectio Divina uh, kind of uh, invitation, just where is God speaking to you in this text? And the response was with the all over the place, and there was a wonderful wildness to that. Uh, the, the longer I've done it, the more I've tightened up the format. So now what I do is, is I preach an introductory point that, that I want to make, that I ask a leading question that has some specificity to it, that directs people back to the text. Then we have a conversation, and then I answer uh, my own question to the best of my, my ability. And so I, I really preach brackets. Mm. Uh, so, the, so the sermon's really tightened quite a bit more. Instead of it being entirely free-flow, it, it, it's a little bit more focused now. And I'd like to think that that invites the congregation to consider one, two, three, four, five points rather than 15 different directions. When you mentioned that your prep process is, is actually probably longer than what you did or would do if you were doing a traditional one-sided sermon, so what kinds of things do you specifically look for, or what kinds of uh, ideas or historical background points do you, do you try to file away for, for, for help in responding to what the folks say? What I'm trying to do in my exegetical work is anticipate the responses different congregation members have to whatever that leading question is of mine. And so if my most important responsibility in that homiletical conversation is to affirm what God is saying in the other person, then say, for example, yesterday we had two folks that were psychotic in worship. One guy was pacing up and down the aisle. I was on one end. He was on the other. There was another woman in the back of the church who was spending a lot of time pacing up and down, couldn't sit still, pontificating on a, a variety of things. But both of them wanted to participate in the service, and we're always going to say yes to that. And so each of them had this uh, monologue of sorts that was um, a stream of consciousness, um, part psychosis, uh, part based in reality. And, and I needed to listen for where what they were saying is connecting back uh, to to the sermon moment. And so if, if I've got all that exegetical work done, then hopefully I'm going to hear something, a word, a phrase, a metaphor, something that will connect back. And again, what I care about so deeply is for this these two people, for example, who I see them on the streets, they're marginalized in every way possible in that moment to be able to affirm, yes, what you just said is is a word from God. Um, that's just, that's really the sermon of the sermon as much as anything. And so if I bring to bear all the research, reading 15 or 20 commentaries and however many sermons other folks have preached on the same text, then there's a, there's a higher likelihood that I can affirm uh, whatever their voice is in that moment. And I, I've watched a video from from the the Haywood Street congregation, and I noticed that you are, as you say, you're willing to call on anybody. You call on both children and adults, uh, people of all different you know demographics, and and so obviously there's this there's this underlying uh, foundation you have that that everyone is of worth and of value, which is in the Methodist Book of Discipline. It's something that we all say, sure. but I think it's, it's, it's crazy. I, I think there are pl- plenty of listeners who, like me, would be nervous just having someone uh, like those two individuals in worship, and we wouldn't even imagine 
giving them a platform to speak. You've already touched on it a little bit, but is there, is there anything else you'd like to say about why it's so important for you to give everyone a chance to contribute that, that feels led to say something? Sure. Well, first, I, I've been asked periodically when, when, when other practitioners have asked about um, this methodology, how much time did you spend with the person who responded um, planning that answer? Mm. And <laughs> my response, of course, is zero. Um, yeah. th- there's no way planted in the congregation to respond. We didn't rehearse this. Um, it, it, it's entirely uh, serendipitous what does or doesn't happen. And, you know, let's let's be quite clear. When you give permission, people permission to speak without censorship, you have no idea what they're going to say. And so if preaching in so many ways is an act of vulnerability, that you're laying yourself bare before the text and the congregation, uh, then saying all comers are welcome to say whatever they feel led to say. Um, you're, you're modeling for people, in my opinion, what the gospel is is calling all of us to be, our most authentic self, void of pretension, of pomp and circumstance. And what you get back in response, who knows? Um, but the reason why we take this so seriously is so often the theology of most urban ministry is, again, if you're housed, if you're educated, if you have two cars and a 401k, God, God has blessed you. And if you have none of those things, God has cursed you. But the, the foundational tenet of Haywood Street is straight from Howard Thurman and Jesus and the disinherited that if God's going to incarnate in any way, it's no accident that Jesus shows up as a homeless man born into a world that doesn't want him. Hangs around with derelicts and paupers and makes company with women and prostitutes and tax collectors and dirty fishermen. And so, if Jesus is still among us, if he's still showing up, if he's still saying yes to the human condition, then the man and the woman that I just described in yesterday's worship that were Scottic, that is in fact Jesus. And so, my responsibility is to make sure Jesus gets heard. And so, how could we not take seriously uh, that God is among us and that we want God to speak? Um, and so, again, I'm to be a steward of God's revelatory presence in worship. I'm not the God-bearer. My responsibility is to point to the God-bearer. And again, in our theology, God's going to show up, except God's not going to be Solomon's head of Christ that we're all so used to that hangs in every moment of most white churches. Uh, but, but God's going to come without clothes, without food, out of jail as a stranger, uh, as someone who's mentally ill. And we want to make sure that Jesus gets heard in Jesus' own church. Mm. That's really great. And and uh, can you talk just a little bit about those experiences you have where, you know, you've, you've prepared something to say, you've got the brackets, you've got sort of the opening point, you've got the leading question, and then you've got the way that you want to wrap it up. Can you tell us what that experience is like when the congregation, maybe an individual or multiple people, just end up taking it in a completely different direction? Um, what is that feeling like? Do you, are, are there some weeks where that feels like God's really taking us in that direction, or are there other times where then you try to grab the reins and steer it back? to the closing you've prepared or what is it you know what is it like when it when it kind of spins what would feel like out of control to the rest of us yeah well some examples we've had a slight breakout during the sermon uh we've had people uh angrily screaming at one another on different sides of the congregation 
Uh, we've had people coming in and out of worship. We've had um, people overdosing. We've had EMS and fire trucks. We've had police show up. Um, and so I, I have to hold loosely that even though I did 15 or 20 hours of preparation <laughs> for this moment, did all the exegetical work, memorized my beginning and end and, and possible responses to, to what people might say. Again, the, the sermon that is more important than what I have to say is the inclusion and the welcome and the taking seriously that Jesus is, is here among us and needs to be heard. And so on occasion, that happened very often. I just have to scrap all the work I've done and instead create a container for whatever's happening to happen and then bless it. And so yeah, I remember in preaching class, the professor saying, you've got two, one of two options when a so-called distraction happens. Either you can pretend it's not there or you can just name it. So we always do the latter. We always just name it. And instead of assuming it's, it's an interruption or that it's uh, an off-key comment um, or off-color uh, behavior, we just say, thank you for sharing. And what I have found most powerful is, is that people are bringing their psychosis and their intoxication, uh, their rough edges, the places they're bleeding and leaking, and they're bringing that into worship. And so much of what I was taught about church is we can't bring any of that to bear before God. And so this, this living witness that we are bringing our worst selves to the altar of God to be redeemed by a power greater than ourselves, again, that, that's more powerful than any sermon I can ever preach. And so I just say yes to it and do my very best to, to co-regulate, um, even if it's across the room, someone that's <laughs> having a hard time, and let everyone else know that's not used to this kind of worship that I'm here to give permission, that this is entirely part of the human experience, that God says yes to an incarnation. So we're going to bless it in whatever way we can, and uh, and we're going to call it church. That's awesome. Well, when I saw you present on this at the preaching festival last year, uh, part of it was sort of a practical demonstration. You started with a question and opened it up to us. And um, on the one hand, it was a workshop setting, so maybe we we weren't expected or expecting to be asked a question. But you're in a room full of preachers who are being asked to contribute to a sermon, uh, and none of us have ever done that. And so we all kind of stared at you like deer in the headlights. Uh, I I was wondering if you have been able to take this method two different settings uh, with different contexts and different types of folks in the audience. Uh, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what the, the reaction is like in different places? Yeah, as I said earlier, I can't go back to the manuscript at this point. And so when I preach in, as a side note, as a mission congregation in the United Methodist Church, we have to raise our funding from a source other than the offering, because the offering is full of widow's mites, and, and it's it's powerful to see people without incomes or disability checks dump their pennies in the, in the offering plate. Um, and so I spent a lot of time preaching in other places, you know, first churches, main street churches, and inviting them to support Haywood Street. With that said, usually that begins with an invitation to preach. And so I, I show up on Sunday mornings with my tie and my robe, <laughs> and it has happened more than a dozen times where I'll ask that leading question. I'll stand there in the aisle and, and I won't get anything back. Yeah. 
I mean, nothing. <laughs> and so, uh, I mean, that says a number of things to me. One is we have taught our congregations so well not to participate mm. that when you actually make that invitation, it's not taken seriously. Or that so many of our congregations have um, been enabled to believe that the clergy person is actually the one who does all of the actual Christian things, including reading the Word. Um, and then maybe a third possibility is this idea that each person actually has something of value to say. I, I remember someone uh, responding to the task of being a minister, and, and her remark was, you know, oftentimes we were terrified that um, the world thinks what we have to say is irrelevant. But, mm. but the more terrifying thing is actually that we have something incredibly relevant to say. And, you know, when I look out of congregation, I've asked a question, and we're, we're long past that awkward pause. That, that's part of what I see in them is my life is full of um, superfluous pretension. And you're asking me to talk about the sacred, and that's not something I do very often. Mm. So I, I don't know what to say, <laughs> yeah. because it's, it's not it's not a vocabulary I get to invoke very often. Um, and so I try to deflect it with humor. I say, uh, awkward silences don't bother me. <laughs> uh, at some point along the way, someone um, in seminary said, you know, in, in the white church, it's impolite to talk and worship, but the black church, it's impolite not to. Mm. Um, so... I make an attempt to, to try to name the angst in the room and then give permission for people permission to speak. But, but sometimes it just doesn't work. And that's if it doesn't work, then I just finish with uh, the bracket I had planned after our conversation and, and then just sit down after seven minutes and, and you know, that's okay too. <laughs> yeah. So. Everybody gets to go to lunch early. So yeah, that's right. I've never heard anybody argue with uh, a preacher who aired on the side of brevity. Yeah, that's right. Well, and even in that that room of preachers, I remember you were you were totally fine waiting, uh, and then the first couple answers was all kind of us quoting back to you the scripture or like a thing mm-hmm. that we might remember from that one seminary class, and it really took a while. Uh, in this room of people whose job it is to make the scriptures relevant, it really took us a while to get to the point where we said anything that was actually relevant and and active and applicable to life and not just um i think you asked us about the wheat and the weeds and you're like you know what are the weeds and so we're all like racking our brain and in reality you're you're pulling one of you know jesus's great rhetorical tricks on us where you ask a question that seems so simple on the surface that we uh, you know we hold our tongues for fear of of saying the wrong thing you know and when i think back to uh, to that preaching moment, that was intimidating for so many reasons. Um, one is, of course, we, we are all so well schooled in, in in the art of deconstruction, and so it occurred to me, driving to Raleigh for for that event, that this could be the the, the toughest sermon I've ever preached, because uh, not only would there be no response, but there would be the the, the, the critical deconstruction of everything I oh, was sure, saying yeah. as I was saying, and. I was so heartened that, um, yeah, it took a little while to warm up, and, and sure, it was brand new. It, it takes all of us a little time to move into something that's brand new. But I thought by the end of it, it, it started to feel more like a dialogue. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And if there's any listeners out there that are uh, intrigued and are considering trying this out in their own congregation, do you have any sort of practical tips or words of encouragement? 
Sure. It's dangerous. It's, it's an enormous risk. And I have been so blessed by this process. I, I just cannot say it enough. And when we've had summer seminarians and visiting clergy and district superintendents and other folks coming to Haywood Street, which has turned into this um, surprising teaching model of sorts, I've seen people uh, willing to entertain this possibility in their home churches. And what they report back to me is, I was terrified. <laughs> I had to rehearse five times more than normal, but yeah. I did it, and, and and it was received with such grace. And so it's going to be uncomfortable on the front end. It's it's impossible to predict what's going to happen, and so much of what my posture is up there is is surrender to the Holy Spirit moving through this experience, and you know, I can't control that. And so, uh, clergy, we are so well-steeped in, in orchestrating the, every moment of worship and how it's going to happen and how it's going to sound. And this is, this is anything but that. And so, you will be blessed by it, but, but it will come with fear and trembling, and <laughs> terror, and all kinds of strong emotions. But again, I think that's what we're supposed to be feeling at church rather than boredom. Yeah, absolutely. Perhaps if we've lost the butterflies before we get up to preach, we're, we've kind of lost uh, sight of what we're actually doing. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, great. Well, we have a set of questions that we like to ask all of our guests. And the first one, you can answer uh, either or or both. What's one of your favorite uh, or most challenging preaching experiences? Well, I tell you, I tried to preach in Matthew 5, 21 through 38 yesterday, where it's that section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is um, giving these moral demands to the disciples about you, you can't be angry, you can't lust. Um, a, a husband has to give a certificate of divorce to a wife. Do not swear oaths. And I banged my head against that text uh, all week in preparation for yesterday. And up and down, sideways, back and forth, it felt like a works righteousness text to me. And mm. so I never landed anywhere. And, you know, if you're, if you're a weekly preacher, you, you do your best, you say it, you sit down and it's on to the next one. But, um, yeah, that was a difficult experience for me. Usually preaching is about, all right, I, I could take this in a dozen different directions, which is the most faithful. This experience was the exact opposite of saying, I, I really got nothing here. And, and so how you, how do you preach a word when you feel less than inspired? And I know that's something that, that resonates deeply with with every preacher who goes at the at this task with the burden of saying something on behalf of God week in and week out. Absolutely. Um, so yes, yesterday was difficult. <laughs> well, and, and then how did how did your congregation share that burden? How were they able to sort of step in and, and help you wrestle with it? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, a number of folks said. You know, actually, I, I think what, what Jesus is doing here, the, these moral imperatives that he's demanding his followers obey are simply impossible. And so Jesus is engaged in an active hyperbole. And so it, that was an interesting response that we can't actually take this literally. Um, and then other folks said, well, if if behavior doesn't matter, then ultimately we're, we're, we're bowing at the altar of cheap grace, that we can just be hedonistic and do whatever we want, and that God's love will cover it in the end. So that can't be right. Mm. And so, if anything, what the, what, the, what the church did yesterday was just 
share in the confusion, the vexation, the the struggle of the text. And you know what? What again? What a powerful witness that is to say in a world that rarely has clean answers. Um, and I know my life doesn't get tied up with a neat bow at the end of every day. Here we had a sermon that didn't either. And so to be reflective of our lives that the text is always trying to intersect with. Yeah, they really shared that with me. Um, you know, and we have an interesting phenomenon where area clergy regularly worship at Haywood Street, and they don't want to do anything. They just want to worship. And uh, in talking with a number of folks such as they said, that that was, a, that, that was an impossible text to, to try to negotiate. So, yeah, uh, yeah. And, so and I went alone in it. Oh, absolutely. And I think it really is amazing sometimes when, when you end up a sermon kind of on this point of, and I don't know, so let's figure it out together. So that's, that's really right. cool. Right. Uh, well, who have been some of the most impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators in your life and why? The best preacher nobody's heard of is... <laughs> My closest mentor, he's a guy named Rob Blackburn, he's the pastor at Central United Methodist. Well, he's been there a few decades. He's a guy that's been offered book tour in every Tulsa church in the land, and he said, you know, because he just wanted to be a local pastor. And I have such reverence for the humility in which he engages in the practice of ministry and such reverence for how hard he works behind a closed door to to craft a sermon, to pick an appropriate metaphor, to wordsmith a sentence over and over again, and then to memorize all of it so that he can stand up there in front of hundreds of people week in and week out, and each person feels, from what they've said to me over and over, that he wrote that sermon for them. Mm. And so what has been profound about uh, Dr. Blackburn's model of preaching is that he is somehow able to talk to the to the PhD, uh, to the middle cat class laborer, and to the person in poverty, and, and somehow he's got three sermons in every sermon, and, and that is so much. There's so much fancy footwork involved in that um, that I can only marvel at it. I can't. I can't copy it. Yeah. Are there any books or other resources out there that you would recommend our listeners check out? Sure. You know, I've got all the the same preaching books you all do, Peter Gomes and Barbara Brown Taylor and William Sloan Coffin and Fred Craddock and Beekner. Um, I think what has been ultimately most helpful for my preaching in addition to being around Rob Blackburn is uh, I, I've done a number of weeks at the Collegeville Institute in um, Minnesota. And they have a series of workshops for clergy where they bring in a professor of writing. And I've done that over and over and over again. And that was as formative for me as my entire time in seminary. Just a week was focused on how how we become a, a faithful writer. And so sentence structure, metaphor again, how you open, how you close, all of those things I didn't spend a lot of time with in seminary, um, but in these workshops, I got to do that. And so the longer I do this, the more I read writers and poets, the less I read preachers. Mm. Do you have any favorite writers that you always tend to go back to? Yeah, I think Bigner again, he, he's at the top of the list. Um, uh, Rilke, Rooney, Mary Oliver, you know, the poets, uh, ultimately it, 
the most profound metaphor for me of God is it's not gardener, it's not parent, it's not farmer, it's creator. Mm. And so the the visual arts, spoken arts, those are the things that keep speaking the language of of faith to me with the greatest greatest mystery, with the greatest truths. Uh, And so I find myself, Tribe Called Quest had had a new album come out, um, going to the artists and listening for them to speak a word of God back to me. That's great. And finally, uh, is there a way that folks can get in touch and say hi or follow your work and see examples of your preaching online? Sure. Haywoodstreet.org is our website. Um, I haven't researched this or even Googled myself, but I assume that there's some YouTube um, videos out there of places I've preached. As I said earlier, I'm, I'm on the road a fair amount uh, trying to evangelize for the calls of David Street and inviting other people to support the ministry financially because we're so clear that um, as long as we're engaged on the streets, we're, we're never going to be able to pay our bills. and We don't want that to change. We don't want to gentrify. Um, but some of those churches I've spoken at, I, I, I think they've, they've put that stuff online. So there's there's, there's a handful of sermons floating out there on the internet somewhere. That's cool. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you again for the invitation. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.